0: it's really nice to see you all tonight. I don't know everybody in the room, but my name's Dave Hughes. I'm part of the leadership team here. So this evening, we're turning to God's Word, and we're coming back to our series in 1 Samuel. So if you'd like to turn to that in your Bibles, it's chapter 25. It's page 297 in the Red Church Bibles. And Samuel is just before the books of Kings and the books of Chronicles. So it's towards the front of the New Testament. If you hit Kings and Chronicles, just go back a little bit and then you'll come to 1 Samuel. So 1 Samuel 25 is our chapter tonight. So let's refresh our minds as to where we've got to in this journey through Samuel. Back in chapter 7, we found Samuel appointed by God as the judge over Israel. It's a time of national revival and the people turn back to God. They confess their sins before God and return to him with all their hearts. And then in chapter 8, there's the sad culmination to Samuel's God-given role as judge. He's now old, and we find his sons turning away from God. They seek dishonest gain, they accept bribes, and we find them perverting justice. And in the absence of clear godly leadership, the people ask for a king. And Samuel's distressed. He knows this is wrong, but God says to him, it's not you they've rejected, it's me. And so, they will have a king. But as that king reigns, he will claim his rights. The people only had to look at the neighboring nations ruled by kings. What would they see happening there? Conscription into the armies, forced labor, taxation, loss of freedom. But the people overlooked this, and they craved for a king. So this is what God gives them. In chapter 10, we see Saul made that king. God had revealed to Samuel that Saul was to be the appointed king. Saul reminds, Samuel reminds the people they have rejected God, and now God will give them what they ask for, and in stepping out of God's good purposes, they are stepping out of God's blessings too. Saul is made king, and then in chapters 13 to 15, we find Saul disobeys God, and he's rejected by God. His role role as king is going to be passed to another. So in chapter 16, we see God sending Samuel to Jesse's family. One of them will be king. And seven impressive sons are presented to Samuel In turn. And you can almost see Samuel scratching his head, as none of them are the one. But it turns out there's one more, a shepherd boy. He's not the same physique as his brothers, but he's brave. He has a warrior heart, and the Lord is with him. And Samuel can now say, This is the one. And David is anointed. As a future king, chapter 17 and 18 show us David in action, defeating Goliath with a a sling and a stone, proclaiming, The battle is the Lord's, achieving that mighty victory in God's strength alone. David was successful in every mission that Saul sent him on, so much so that the people danced and sang. Saul has slain his thousands, but David, his tens of thousands. And as the people revered David, so Saul's heart became consumed with jealousy. So much so that he was filled with a spirit that was evil and he became determined to kill David. So David has to flee for his life. In chapter 22, we see David and his men on the run. In chapter 23, Saul is relentlessly pursuing, keeping David constantly on the move. And then the last chapter we looked at before we moved on was chapter 24. And there's an extraordinary incident. David and his men are hiding in the depths of a dark cave at En Gedi in the Judean wilderness. And to their amazement, King Saul comes in to the cave to relieve himself. And David's men are nudging him. And they're urging him to see this as God's provision. And for him to take Saul's life. Here's the opportunity. But David wouldn't. He still sees Saul as God's anointed king. And so what does he do? He creeps up and he cuts a corner of Saul's robe. And then as soon as the Saul's at a safe distance, David calls out, Saul! And he bows before the king. Then he shows him this piece of robe and tells him he could have killed him, but didn't. And Saul responds to David, may the Lord reward you well, for the way you treated me today. And they all lived happily ever after. Sadly not. Yes, Saul returns home, but one chapter later we find him hunting David with 3,000 select Israeli troops. Once more, Saul and his SAS men are on the hunt and David's still on the run. But before then, we have tonight's chapter. You've had it open for a long time. So we'll briefly look at what happens in chapter 25. I want to focus on the four people we find in this chapter and what each of their hearts look like. So I've called it 1 Samuel, 25 Lessons from Four Hearts. Let's read verses 1 and 2. Now, Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him at his home in Ramah. Then David moved down into the desert of Paran. So, Samuel has died. Now, in a sense, this this week we've seen an outpouring of anguish in Iran for a powerful military leader who's died. You can visualise those scenes you saw on the TV screens or in the newspapers. It was the demise of a man whose life proclaimed terror and war. And this is a very different scene in verse 1, but it's still a huge crowd. It says, All Israel assembled and mourned for him. Why did they mourn? Because Samuel, God's appointed judge, had led the country wisely throughout the years of his leadership. It was no wonder they mourned the loss of such a man of God. And that's my first thought. Samuel with a heart for God. And that's a great example for us to follow. To be men and women, to be young people who step up to the mark for God. To serve him where he calls us. And where he places us. And as Andy reminded us last Sunday evening, however small our role may seem, it's a God-given role which is specific to you and to me. Only we can fulfill that role. And like Samuel, we need to handle that role faithfully. But in Samuel's life, there's also a warning to heed. I think maybe it's a warning to those of us who are older. When Samuel was old, the Bible tells us that his sons scorned God and they lived godless lives. Such was their example that the people cried out for a king rather than a judge. Samuel should have taken action, but he didn't. He ran the race well. But he finished it poorly. Whatever race we're on, let's ensure that we finish it well. It may well be the life we live, the job we do, the exams we take. Let's run those races well. Let's finish them well. Let's live life with no regrets. Now, we won't achieve that in our own strength. But as the Holy Spirit fills us and empowers us and leads us with his help, we can finish well. Let's move on to look at character number two. His name is Nabal. And I'm going to read from verse two. A certain man in Maon, who had property there at Carmel, was very wealthy. He had a thousand goats and three thousand sheep which he was shearing in Carmel. His name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. She was an intelligent and beautiful woman, but her husband was surly and mean in his dealings. He was a Calebite. While David was in the wilderness, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. So he sent ten young men and said to them, Go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. Say to him, Long life to you. Good health to you and your household, and good health to all that is yours. Now I hear that it is sheep-shearing time, when your shepherds were with us. We did not ill-treat them, and the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. Ask your own servants, and they will tell you. Therefore, be favorable towards my men, since we come at a festive time. Please give your servants and your son David... What you can find for them. When David's men arrived, they gave Nabal this message in David's name. Then they waited. Now, where's David? Verse 2 tells us that he was in the desert of Paran, the same place where Nabal lived. And he and his men were in dire circumstances. They were living in an arid, fruitless desert. And they were still on the run from Saul. But now Nabal comes on the scene. And verse 2 describes him as a man of property and very wealthy. Today he would have a mansion, he'd have a roller in the drive, and he'd have an eye-watering bank balance. His version of the roller was a thousand goats and three thousand sheep. Serious numbers. And it was shearing time. It was time for celebration. To round off the package, he had a beautiful, intelligent wife. Now, if this was Andy Diggins, he'd say something else. <laughs> a beautiful, intelligent wife. Yes, yet, however, Nabal was, was well-named. Nabal means a fool. And though he had such an abundance, he is described as surly and mean in his dealings. David had had dealings with Nabal's men before, David's men have protected Nabal's shepherds. They've treated them well. Nabal's own servants would bear witness to that. Surely Nabal would show generosity to David in response. And so David sends these 10 young men to Nabal. They bring David's greetings. David wishes Nabal long life, and to him and his household, good health. And with those greetings... The ten young men asked Nabal to provide help for David and his men. After all, it's a festive time, and Nabal has such an abundance. The ten young men wait for Nabal's response. Verse ten. Nabal answered David's servants Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat I have slaughtered for my shearers and give it to men coming from who knows where? David's men turned round and went back. When they arrived, they reported every word. So here's my second thought. David, Nabal, a man with a hardened heart, He had so much, but he gave so little. I wonder if you're a cup half full or a cup half empty person. Do you focus on what you have and give thanks for it? Do you appreciate what God has given and praise him for it? Or do you focus on what you wish you had and haven't and feel frustrated by that? The things you long for seem like a morning mist. They so quickly evaporate and you're left feeling a loser. How does God want you and me to be? Well, it's clearly not like Nabal. And we need to learn the lesson of Nabal's life. Let me suggest that God wants us to be a generous people. Think for a moment what we have to offer. Listen to these beautiful words from 2 Corinthians chapter 8. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Isn't that amazing? That you and I have been given the riches of Christ. Our bank balance may not be great, yet we are overwhelmingly rich. The context of that verse in 2 Corinthians is Paul writing about the Macedonian church, which is passing through a time of great poverty, yet they still wanted to give. And Paul says to the church at Corinth, at the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. So from what God entrusts to us materially, we're called to be generous to others, to hold these resources with an open hand and a willingness, even a longing, to share what God has given. But what other riches do we experience? God has poured out his love upon us, How beautiful if our lives are springs of God's love. We see hurting people. We see damaged people. We see lonely people. And God's love flows out from us to bring healing and care. Let's be generous with God's love. But God has also poured out His peace upon us. How often do we come into contact with with troubled people? The pressures of life, the pressures of relationships bringing strain and stress. When we see that in others, when we see that in our brothers and sisters in the church, can we be channels of God's peace, sharing with them, pointing them to Jesus, praying with them that God's peace might be restored to them? It's a beautiful thing to be blessed With God's riches. And God wants us to bless others with those riches and to do so generously. Can we ask God to help us to generously share His riches with others? To give us eyes to see the need, hearts to respond, and a willingness to take action. Praise God, those riches are without limit. You know the words we sing, grace and love like mighty rivers flowing incessant from above. What an amazing thing to be trusted with the ever-flowing riches of God to share with others. May God help us to be a generous people. Let's come to our third character, David. We're going to pick up the story in verses 12 and 13. David's men turned round and went back. When they arrived, they reported every word. David said to his men, each of you strap on your sword. So they did. And David strapped on his as well. About 400 men went up with David, while 200 stayed with the supplies. Now David had been shown utter contempt by Nabal. David's earlier kindness to Nabal's men is now thrown back in his face. And in the face of such abuse and such rejection, we see David's heart. David has a revengeful heart. He's been hurt. He wants to retaliate. He's out for revenge. So David takes 400 men. They're armed. And his goal is to wipe out Nabal and every male belonging to him. He's en route with destruction in mind. I wonder if you've ever felt something like that. We've been hurt. We've been shown condemned, contempt. We've been rejected in some way or shown unkindness. And there's an anger in our lives. There's a bitterness towards those who've damaged us. And that bitterness lives with us. It's our traveling companion. It's our closing thought as we sleep. It's there when we awake. And the worst case scenario is that we want to take revenge in some way. The more likely scenario is that we hold that bitterness in our heart. And that resentment is like a cancer. It eats away at us. None of us would living would willingly live with a cancer. So here's my heart's desire on the screen. Let's avoid a revengeful heart. Let God replace it with a healed and cleansed and restored heart. It's bringing my bitterness, my resentment, my anger to God, saying, Lord, I don't want this. I can see its destructive power in my life. I see it's alienating me from you, Lord. Please uproot those feelings. Please remove them. Please forgive me and cleanse me. Please restore me. The situation may not change, but my heart has. And as I pray that, my aching pain, rather than that aching pain, in its place comes a beautiful peace. A peace which passes understanding, a God given peace. So if that's appropriate to you, do make that your goal. Our final character is Abigail. Let me just see, let's see the role she plays, reading from verse 14. One of the servants told Abigail, Nabal's wife, David sent messengers from the wilderness to give our master his greetings, but he hurled insults at them. Yet these men were very good to us. They did not ill-treat us, and the whole time we were out in the fields near them, nothing was missing. Night and day they were a wall around us. The whole time we were herding our sheep near them. Now think it over and see what you can do, because disaster is hanging over our master and his whole household. He is such a wicked man that no one can talk to him. Abigail acted quickly. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, five seals of roasted grain, a 100 cakes of raisins and 200 cakes of pressed figs and loaded them on donkeys. Then she told her servants, Go on ahead, I'll follow you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. As she came riding her donkey into a mountain ravine, there were David and his men descending towards her and she met them. David had just said, it's been useless. All my watching over this fellow's property in the wilderness so that nothing of his was missing. He has paid me back with evil for good. May God deal with David be ever so severely if by morning I leave one, of, one male of all who belong to him alive. When Abigail saw David, She quickly got off her donkey and bowed down before David with her face to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, "'Pardon your servant, my lord, and let me speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. Please pay no attention, my lord, to that wicked man, Nabal. He is just like his name. His name means a fool, and folly goes with him. And as for me, your servant, I did not see the men my lord sent.'" And now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord your God lives and you live, since the Lord has kept you from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, may your enemies and all who are intent on harming my Lord be like Nabal. And let this gift which your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the men who follow you. Please forgive your servant's presumption. The Lord your God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my Lord. Because you fight the Lord's battles. And no wrongdoing will be found in you as long as you live. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my Lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. When the Lord has fulfilled for my Lord every good thing he promised concerning him, and has appointed him ruler over Israel. My Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or having avenged himself. When your Lord, your God, has brought my Lord success, remember your servant. So one of Abigail's servants tells her the disastrous situation. The way in which Nabal responded to David's men and urges Abigail to see what she can do. And Abigail sees the danger. And she's an action woman. She acts quickly. And this is how I see Abigail's heart. I see that Abigail had a wise heart. Realising the stupidity of her husband's heart and without his knowledge, we see her swinging into action. She assembles all the provisions that David and his men will need. She has them loaded onto donkeys and she sends her servants with the orders, go ahead and I will follow you. She's on a rescue mission and yet David's on a revenge mission. And we read that Abigail as she descends into that mountain ravine, David and his men come face to face with her. What happens next? Abigail bows before David. She appeals to David to ignore Nabal and his utterly foolish response. Had she seen David, then the outcome would have been different. As Abigail appeals to David, she acknowledges David's God to be the living God. She proclaims God's hand to be over David, that he will give David a lasting dynasty, and that no wrongdoing will be found in David as long as he lives. That God will fulfill every good thing he has promised David. And so Abigail appeals to David that he will receive her gift for him and his men. And that he will not avenge or bring bloodshed. In a few moments in our discussion time, we'll, we'll reflect on the wisdom of Abigail's approach and what we can learn from it. Her approach averts disaster. And that can be true for us. A wise approach, a gentle word, a godly response, can so often make all the difference. It did in this situation. So how did Abigail's wise approach transform a potentially disastrous situation? The last verses are from verse 32. Just three verses. David said to Abigail, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you to meet me today. May you be blessed for your good judgment and keep for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. Otherwise, as surely as the Lord of the God, the God of Israel lives, who has kept me from harming you? If you had not come quickly to meet me, not one male belonging to Nabal would have been left alive by daybreak. So, David, we see here, has a restrained heart. He praises God that rather than taking revenge, God has sent Abigail to avert disaster. God has kept him from bloodshed and from avenging himself. God has taken the wisdom of Abigail's heart to touch the revenge in David's heart. And God has changed David's heart to a restrained heart. A heart that's turned from bloodshed to a heart that sees God changing his heart to one of restraint. And verse 35 says, David accepted from her hand what she had brought and said, Go home in peace. I have heard your words and granted your request. The chapter ends with Nabal hearing from Abigail what she had done and David's response. And we read, his heart failed him and became like stone. About 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal And he died. When David heard of Nabal's death, he sent his servant to ask Abigail to become his wife, which she did at the end of the story. Now, the wisdom of that is another discussion, but tonight we've simply focused on four hearts Samuel, a heart for God, Nabal, a hardened heart, David, a revengeful heart that turned to a restrained heart through the wisdom of Abigail's wise heart. Let's reflect on the wisdom on those hearts and, and the, lesson, the lessons they bring to us as we think about them. Maybe we could just pray together before we discuss. Father, we thank you for this chapter. Thank you, Lord, for what we can learn from the lives of each of these characters, either examples to follow or, or warnings to heed. And, Lord, we just pray that you will help us to live uh, with godly hearts, with wise hearts, which, with hearts that reflect the character of Jesus in our lives. We pray it in his name. Amen well we've got two questions that are going to come on the screen they say what can we learn from Abigail's approach and what does a wise heart look like and what steps can we take to avoid a revengeful heart and how can God resource us in that so let's take five or six minutes maybe just to think through those those two questions and see what we can glean from them.